Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 13. Hallelujah. We're glad to see our brother here again over whose body MS was broken Sunday night before last. Hallelujah. Amen. John chapter 13, we're, uh, we're coming to, uh, to what is my favorite part of John's gospel. We'll remind you that uh, John wrote this uh, uh, gospel much, much later than any of the other of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke's account. Uh, he's writing this probably about 92, 93, maybe 94 A.D., which is uh, some 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Because of that, he has um, uh, an opportunity to share some things with a backwards point of view that uh, that neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke had, because all of those were written very soon after Jesus was raised from the dead. And uh, consequently, John gives us uh, uh, a little bit more of an overview, if that's a, a good way to say it, um, from uh, what was not just what happened. His um, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke pretty much followed the same track of Jesus' life and ministry, even though they emphasized a couple of different things. But John doesn't do that. John fills in the blanks with things that they didn't tell about and, uh, and gives some uh, deeper meaning as to what all these things that, the, that he knows these readers are aware of because they've read the other Gospels, what these things meant, what the spiritual significance of them were. He really does that a lot in the next, uh, next four chapters, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Is that four or five chapters? Whatever it is. Uh, up until the time that Jesus is betrayed. The 13th chapter starts uh, uh, with the the, uh, the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples, and um, uh, which was the night before he was uh, crucified. And um, uh, consequently, it's um, I was talking with a friend of, uh, of mine, minister friend of mine, not uh, well, just here in the last couple of weeks. And uh, and we were talking about this and he said that the Lord had prompted him to do something about the gospel of John that that I'd never really, really considered in this uh, this context or this vein. He said that the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to read chapters 13 through 17 fast. Well, he's a teacher and he takes things apart and and, uh, he may be worse than I am about, um, you know, words and and uh, meanings and uses and stuff like that. And and so his tendency is pretty much the same as mine, and that is read a little bit, think about what you're reading, think about what uh, what significance that has and, and, uh, and that type of thing. But the Lord spoke to him about reading it all together. And he said, when I did that, he was telling me this, he said, when I did that, I came away with two main things that the Lord was trying to get across to these guys. Because you realize that John didn't write this in chapter and verse, and he is telling a story. And this part of the story is intended to cover the last night of Jesus' life here on the earth with his disciples. And, uh, uh, and it's... Uh, uh, I, I like it both ways, to be honest with you. I've, uh, since that time, I've, uh, I've done what, uh, what he said the Lord prompted him to do, and I see exactly what he's talking about. But I like taking some of it apart, too. Um, the important thing is that the 13th chapter really um, manifests, if that's a good way to say it, really manifests Jesus' private ministry with his disciples. We, uh, we stopped at, um, uh, the end of, uh, what was it? The end of the 10th chapter, I guess it was. And, uh, and made the statement that, uh, uh, that Jesus' public ministry was at an end. 
Well, the 11th and 12th chapters had some, had to do with Lazarus being raised from the dead, and that was certainly a public event, and it was something that God intended to be the final sign, the final proof for Israel. But, um, uh, but he had departed from Jerusalem. He had departed from Judea. They had to come get him for him to come back to raise Lazarus from the dead. Well, chapter 13 is, um, uh, is the beginning, is, is really the transition to his last statements that he made here on the earth and what he tried to share with his disciples. Now, the, um, uh, we'll start in chapter 13, verse 1, and then make some uh, uh, further comments. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were with, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Um, the, the last part of, um, the last part of the, the previous chapters, chapters five through 12 really identify Jesus ministering, uh, to the, the nation of Israel. Chapter one in verse, uh, what is it? Verse six, seven, eight, somewhere around there. He said, he came unto his own and his own received him not. It's talking about Israel. Well, chapters five through 12 are the proof that he was not received by Israel. And the Bible talks about how at one point, uh, I think it was at the end of the, uh, uh, end of the, the 10th chapter, that he hid themselves from them. He departed and hid themselves from him. But chapters 13 through 17 is all about Jesus revealing himself to the disciples. So where he hid himself from the Jews, he revealed himself to the disciples. And verse 1 tells us why. Verse 1 tells us why Jesus did these things this way. And again, John is having the, the benefit of hindsight. Don't you know he has had year after year after year after year to understand and and, and seek greater understanding about what happened and why. And this is how he tells us the story. He doesn't give us any of the details about the Last Supper. He doesn't give us any of the uh, the details about how uh, they they got the, the upper room where they were they're gathering, you know, this place where they were having the, the Last Supper. He doesn't go into any of those details. And both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all, all three of them tell us about them. John doesn't bother with it. He tells us about the spiritual significance of these things. So he says, now when the Feast of the Passover was... Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world under the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. I want you to notice three things. It says he knew that his hour had come. Now, what does that mean, his hour had come? Well, back in chapter 12, in verse 24, he said, Verily I say unto you, well, verse 23, he answered and said, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What's he talking about? Verse 24, he's talking about his death. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Now, folks, the Last Supper that Jesus had, or the Lord's Supper, whichever way you want to call it, this last meal that Jesus had with his disciples was full of symbolism. And it was step by step by step of fulfilling things that had already taken place, that were yet to come, and that would come after his resurrection. And so everything, John is, is, uh, is being very symbolic here. He's showing the symbolism behind these things step by step. So when he talks about Jesus knowing that his hour has come, he's talking about his death. Now, you know as well as I do that God doesn't wait for things to happen to say they're done. God calls things that be not as though they are. So as far as Jesus is concerned, when he knows that his hour has come and when he declares that his hour has come, he realizes, he knows what it's about. This is where I offer my life up for the world. This is where I become the sacrifice. So as far as he's concerned, the sacrifice is already done. 
not to say that he's already been to the cross because we know how he's going to agonize in the Garden of Gethsemane in just a few hours. Yet, he is accepting of the fact that he is going to fulfill the plan of the Father. His death is a necessity. Having come to that realization, having determined that, he says, or the Bible says of him, since his hour was come, What's he going to do? He knows he's going to depart out of this world unto the Father. You know, it's interesting that it doesn't say out of the world. And it's also interesting how many times at the end of Jesus' life that the Bible talks about this world, that he refers to this world. For example, he says, uh, 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 the judgment of this world is come. Talking about him uh, going to the cross, the plan of God for him to go to the cross. He says, the prince of this world is cast out. He keeps talking about this world. Over and over and over again. Not the world. He talks about this world. This world that he's referring to is the world where sin dominates. It's the world where Satan is the God of. Satan is the God of this world, right? He's not the God of the world. He's the God of this world. And so it refers to that. It refers to him knowing that he should depart out of this world. Well, where is he going? He knows he's going to his father. And folks, you've got to realize the reason that this is significant is because this is behind everything that he's going to do and everything that he's going to explain to his disciples from this point forward. He knows that he's the sacrifice. He knows that he's going to the Father. And the third thing that this verse tells us is that he loves his own. Now, what would you be doing on your last night knowing you're going to the cross? And, and realize he knows what the cross is about. And when I say the cross, I don't just mean the few hours that he spent hanging on it. He's talking about, the Bible talks about the cross or the death of Jesus as being the three days that he spends in the the pit of hell paying the price for all of this world's sins. It's amazing to me how the church world just doesn't think about what happened between the three days, between uh, the three day period between Jesus hanging on the cross and the resurrection. Where was he? What's he doing? Is he just hanging out somewhere? Is he resting? Why in the world would God delay raising Jesus from the dead for one moment if there wasn't something of significance, spiritual significance, eternal significance taking place? If I'm Jesus and God's delaying raising me, I'm ripped. I've given my life. I've suffered for this death for the purpose of being raised from the dead. He talks about this very thing. He talks about being glorified in the Father because of his death. And yet God's going to delay it? No way. Well, then what's taking place in those three days? He's paying the penalty, the eternal penalty, for all of mankind's sins. He's paying the price for the sins of the world. Psalms tells us a little bit about this. Jonah even refers to it prophetically. When he talks about the things that were coming upon him, the waves of judgment that were coming upon him. Jonah refers to some things being in the belly of the fish that didn't happen to him. He talks about the breakers. It's translated breakers in the King James, but it's talking about wave after wave after wave of God's judgment. That didn't happen to Jonah. He talks about being cut off from every living thing. Well, if Jonah's cut off from every living thing, who's he talking to? These things didn't happen to Jonah. He's speaking prophetically of Jesus. And everything that he refers to is unmentionable punishment and judgment. That's what Jesus is facing. Now, if you are facing that, 
if this is the night before you're crucified and you're going to face that kind of judgment, and he knows what's coming. It didn't take him by surprise. He didn't get there and say, wait a minute, I didn't plan for this. He knew exactly what was coming. That's why he's agonizing over uh, so greatly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows this is not just a few hours on the cross. He knows this is not just nails through his hands and through his feet and suffering for a little while there. He wouldn't turn away from that. He wouldn't pray about that. No, he's praying about being separated from the Father when that judgment is taking place. That's what he's agonizing about. That's what he's sweating great drops of blood about. So if you're facing that, what are you going to do? I would think that if it was me, it's going to dominate my thinking. But right on the other hand, it says that he's just as focused on departing and going to the Father. Well, what does that mean? That does not mean the pit of hell. That means being raised from the dead. That's the three days from now experience where he's seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. So for me, I'd be schizophrenic. Because I'd be facing the the anguish of the cross and the judgment along with the joy of the glorification and the resurrection. But neither one stops him from loving his own. Neither despair of the cross nor the joy of the resurrection. Now, when the feast of the Passover, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were with him in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, this is a bad translation. The word ended means to cause to be. It's most probably um, a better translation would be in supper having arrived. Because we knew that we know that the disciples did not prepare the Passover meal. We know from the other gospel accounts that there was somebody that had been prompted by the Spirit of God themselves to prepare this meal, and the disciples showed up and said, this is for the Master. The Lord has need of this. So probably what this means is when supper had arrived, when whoever had prepared this Passover meal, I'm guessing that when Martha finds out somebody else prepared the Passover meal for Jesus, she was pretty upset. Nevertheless, when this thing occurs, now these things take place. And it talks about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And that makes sense because you don't wash up after dinner's over. Do you? No, you wash up beforehand. So it said in supper being ended, literally, uh, in my opinion, having arrived or having begun, the devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that his father had given all things unto his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. So what does that mean? That means there's a spiritual significance that goes beyond just what they see is taking place. Now, let's stop and talk about this for a little bit. Because it says that Jesus rose, took off his garments, and girded himself with the towel to wash their feet. What does that mean? Well, we know of another time when Jesus took off his garments to obey the will of God, right? The Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man. In other words, to be the servant of mankind. 
So we know that in the beginning, before he was ever born of the Virgin Mary, we know that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to earth to be like a man. In other words, to be without divine power until the Holy Ghost was, uh, had anointed him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. He was just like you and me, folks. Didn't have to be, but that's the way that he did it because it was according to God's plan. So he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. Now, what you need to realize is this is symbolic of the other side of the resurrection. This is symbolic of the work of the high priest. Now, here's what I want you to get. Every one of the other gospels tells us about the, what's called the Olivet Discourse. What that is, is when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, that's when the disciples said, oh, look at the temple. Isn't it a beautiful thing in Matthew chapter 22 or 24? He said, isn't this a beautiful thing? Jesus said, there's not one stone going to be left on upon, upon another. And then he tells him about the signs of the end. He tells him about the tribulation. He tells him about certain signs before he comes back for the church. He tells him about all this stuff relative to the end of the world. Mark does the same thing. Luke does the same thing. Mark gives the least amount of information about it, but all three of them tell about that important part of Jesus' ministry. John doesn't say a word about it. Why? Because John does something that has greater spiritual significance. Now, you got to realize, John's probably thinking, do we need a fourth account of what he said? Because he's read the other Gospels. He knows the people that are going to read his Gospel have read the other Gospels. So do we really need to say it again? Everybody understands that Jesus said this. But John goes further. Because where Jesus in the other three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is identified as telling about the end of the world, where he's telling about the tribulation and about judgment and different things like that that's coming on the earth, in John's Gospel, he reveals heaven and their position with the Father. So instead of telling about the end of the world, he tells them about the beginning of their new life. So, here Jesus takes the water basin, fills the water basin, girds himself. Notice why he does why he does this. He tells them, he's going to tell them to follow his example. Here's why this is so important. Peter is upset when he gets to him because he says, Master, you can't do this. You cannot do this. This is the work of a household slave. This is not something that, that would be provided by the host at a meal like this. The host would provide for, if he had to go out and hire somebody for that night, he would have a slave, the lowest class of society, to perform this work. But here Jesus is doing it. This is an example. Remember we said that as far as God is concerned, once something, the time for something has come, as far as he's concerned, it's done. The sacrifice is done. It's just walking through it now. Jesus knows This is time for this. It will be done. I'm the sacrifice for the world. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the sacrifice for the world. So everything he does at this Passover meal is to symbolize the other side of the resurrection. And the other side of the resurrection shows the high priest and his concern for his people. So when he comes to Peter, he said, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, I want you to understand something. I love Peter. I mean, he's, he's, he's got such a great heart. But he's just like we are sometimes. He'll jump out there with stuff. He's making a declarative statement, You will never wash my feet. Now, the next verse, he'll say, Go ahead and wash me head to toe. So Peter will bounce from one side to the other. 
His heart's in the right place, but he doesn't have things figured out. He operates without understanding. You know, one of the hardest things for people to get is the value of going slow. I remember working with Brother Hagin. Man, we, we'd hear him prophesy about something. We'd hear him talk about Jesus uh, telling him about the fourth phase of his ministry, which at that time he had not entered into yet. And, oh, boy, us young people, we had it all figured out. Dad, we've got to do this. He, he would have said something that the, about things to come, and we'll, we'd gather up afterwards or in the next couple of days, and we'd talk it out. And, boy, by the time we talked it out, we had it all figured out. We had the plan. And so we'd sit down with him, sometimes together, sometimes we'd talk to him individually, and we'd say, Dad, you, we gotta start doing this. We, we gotta take, we gotta take action. We gotta move. Because if you're not moving, I mean, nothing's getting done, right? That's the way we feel. That's the way we think things work. And Dad would just laugh and he'd say, Oh, you fellas, just hold your horses. God will work it all out. Just because he said it was gonna happen doesn't mean we're start, supposed to start moving yet. When it's time to move, he'll tell us, and it'll all work out just in the right way. And, oh, that'd frustrate us. We'd think, oh, he's missing God. Because you got to do something. I mean, you got to work. you gotta, you got to move. Right? Not so much. There's an Old Testament story about uh, Israel at, at, uh, at war. And uh, one of the captains of the general's wanted to send back word to the king. And so he got one of his trusted uh, soldiers, and he said, I want you to run to the king with this message. Tell him how the battle's going. So the guy takes off. Well, there's another guy that sees this guy run, and he runs over to the general, and he says, man, I want to run too. And the general says, well, okay, go ahead and run. Now, he doesn't have a message. He just runs. First guy runs with a message. Second guy, he's just running. So he runs, and he is so excited. He is so enthusiastic. He is so full of passion. One of my favorite words in the modern-day church. Passion means zeal. But the Bible says be careful that you don't have zeal without knowledge. I know. I'm a buzzkill for a lot of people's plan. So the second guy runs. Second guy is such a good runner, he outruns the first guy. He gets to the king first. The king sees him coming. He gets word that he's coming. They see him on the horizon. He runs in, out of breath. He says, what's the news of the battle? He says, I don't know. He said, what'd you run for? He said, I don't know. About that time, the other guy probably saved the first guy's life. The other guy comes around over the top of the hill, and he gets there with news of the battle. And not another word is ever said about the first guy that runs. Now, that's what we were like when we were in Bible school. We wanted to run. We had no idea where we were going. And that wasn't important because the important thing was to run. It's not the important thing, folks. The important thing is to get the plan of God and to move in his timing. Peter was one of these guys. Peter would jump out there with anything. You'll never wash my feet, Lord. Notice what Jesus said, verse 8. He said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Notice he didn't say in me. He says with me. Because, folks, I want you to understand something. The washing of the disciples' feet has nothing to do with salvation. The washing of the disciples' feet is the Old Testament fulfillment of the labor. 
You remember the, the articles of the temple and how things were arranged? The first thing when you came into the outer courtyard was the brazen altar. What was that for? That was where the sacrifice was killed. Jesus, our being come, is the sacrifice death, or the death of the sacrifice. The labor is what you do after you've sacrificed because you've got to clean up before you can go to the sanctuary. And everything Jesus is going to tell his disciples is about the heavenly sanctuary. So the first thing he's got to do is he's got to wash them so that they are appropriate for entering into the sanctuary that he's going to describe. So he says, if if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me, not in me. He knows Peter's going to get saved. He knows as soon as Peter gets the word about the resurrection and sees Jesus and so forth, he knows these guys are going to get saved with one exception, and he identifies that. He knows these guys are going to come in. They already believe in him as the Messiah. So when they hear of Jesus being raised from the dead, they'll make the natural step of accepting him as Lord and Savior. That's, that's easy. That's a given. The only exception to that is Judas, and Jesus identifies that. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about working with him. He's talking about fellowship. Jesus makes the, makes the dis- distinction the differentiation between relationship and fellowship. Relationship is being in Christ. Fellowship is walking with him. Now, what does that mean? Well, feet always has to do with where you go. It has to do with the actions of your life. So Jesus, apart from some grace teachers today, Jesus seemed to place importance on not only being in Christ, but how you live. He said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. You have no part in me. So what does Peter do? The very guy that says, you'll never wash my feet. Then Peter says, well, Lord, don't just wash my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. If this has to do with being in fellowship with you, if this has to do with walking with you, dunk me. I'll take the bath. Jesus said to him, he that is washed, the word washed literally means to bathe. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So he's making a distinction again. He's showing the difference between fellowship and relationship. He said, he that is washed or he that is bathed in the blood of Christ needeth not to needeth not save but to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. Now he's talking about Judas. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Keep that in mind. There's going to be something that we want to bring out if we have time. Oh, my goodness, I'm used up most of my time already. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you. I want you to notice that he goes back to his position as their master and their teacher. When he is girding himself, he lays aside his garments, he girds himself with the towel, he pours water in the basin, basin and wipes their, washes their feet and wipes them with the towel. But now he goes back to his other situation where he is their master. Before he shows himself as the servant high priest. In other words, his care and his concern for the washing of the water with the word, as Ephesians 6 talks about, or Ephesians 5 talks about, as the high priest on the other side of the resurrection. Now he goes back to being their master, sitting at the table with them. And he asks him, he says, do you know what I just did? Notice what he says in verse 13. He said, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for I am. You can never find a place in the Gospels where his disciples call him Jesus. Do you know that? 
Every time they call him Lord or they call him Master. Because they don't put themselves on an equal plane with him. Never. Never did. Jesus comes walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. They use those two names, Master and Lord. Master means teacher. He said, you call me Master and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought also, you ought, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now notice he didn't say, if I've washed your feet, you should wash mine. No, he's setting an example for them. If I've established a place of fellowship for you, then you should establish a place of fellowship through the word with others. If I brought you into fellowship with me through the word, you should bring others into fellowship with you through the word too. Now, why does he use the two terms, master and Lord? Well, those are the two things that they call him. A teacher you listen to, a Lord you obey. The teacher you believe. The Lord, you do what he says. Interesting that those are the two words that he identifies that they used. For I have given you, verse 15, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Now, folks, what is Jesus doing He's setting an example, but why? In a nutshell, Jesus is fulfilling the very truth that he gave over in John chapter 8. Jesus said to those that believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's only one way to know the truth, and that's by continuing in the word. There's only one way to become a disciple, and that is by continuing in the word. Jesus is making disciples of these believers. And that's the example that he's showing. And that discipleship only comes through continuing or obeying the word. That's what continuing in the word means. It means to learn, master or teacher, and to obey, Lord. So he's saying that just as he's made disciples of them, through their lifestyle, that's what action means. It means lifestyle. You know, lifestyle is the hardest thing to, for me to preach. I, I would assume that it would be the hardest thing for any preacher or any pastor to, to, to teach. I guess the exception to that might be if you had a loose lifestyle, then you could just say to everybody, you know, follow my example and we'll call it grace teaching. But Jesus put a high value on lifestyle. Put a high value on lifestyle. Now, he's going to, to tell them about a new commandment here in a little bit. That new commandment is love. That love, commandment of love should dictate and determine our lifestyle. But so often, we as the modern-day church separate love from lifestyle. Oh, I love everybody, so I'm going to live the way I want to because I'm under grace. How does that fit? It doesn't. It's not supposed to. Folks, the things that, the things that were accepted 25 and 30 years ago, when I went to Bible school, as, uh, as the normal way that a Christian life should be lived, is almost unheard of now. 
I mean, now that's considered to be under bondage. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the teaching on righteousness. I've spent 30 years focusing on who I am in Christ. But realizing who I am in Christ has made me want to live worthy, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Who talks about that anymore? Who can get away with talking about that anymore? God hadn't changed. Society's values may have. What Christian young people think is okay and, and, and is what they think it is and isn't okay nowadays may have changed from 25 or 30 years ago, but God hadn't changed. The Bible hadn't changed a lick. Jesus seems to be concerned about that. That's what washing their feet is all about. So he said, if you know these things, verse 17, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of you all. Now, notice what he said. He said, all of you are clean except one. He makes the distinction that there is one, and of course that one is Judas. There's no cleanliness there. There's no bathed in the blood there. I speak not of you all, but I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, that is so significant in light of what Jesus has done. Jesus has just humbled himself. Why? Because he knew who he was. Did I, did I, um, I'm not even sure if I went over that. Notice verse three. Here's the reason that Jesus had a servant's attitude. You hear a lot about, you hear a lot of people say, well, we need to have a servant's attitude. There's only one way to have that. Jesus didn't have it because he didn't think anything of himself. Jesus had that because he knew three things. And you will never be a servant in the kingdom of God the way that the Bible instructs us to, to follow Jesus' example, unless you know these three things. Verse 3, Jesus knowing, number one, that the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, he knew what he had. You'll never be a servant unless you know what you got. Second, knowing that he was come from God. In other words, he knew who he was. You'll never be a servant if you don't know who you are. This false humility stuff, that's not servanthood. That's insincerity. Third, Jesus knowing that he went to God. He knew where he was going. Jesus knew three things, and those three things is what enabled him to lay aside his garment and take the position of a household slave for the benefit of his disciples. He knew what he had, he knew who he was, and he knew where he was going. You know those three things? You can serve anybody in any situation. You can humble yourself no matter what anybody else thinks about it. No matter what somebody else's attitude is, you know those three things. You can be a servant in any and every situation. There is no job that is too small for the servant of God. Had a guy come to me. It's been years ago now. I don't even know how long. Guy came to me, and he and his family had uh, come. He and his wife had uh, two kids, I think, if I remember right. They found our church, and, oh, we were just the greatest thing. I just love when people get all excited about our church. Because then I, then I get to watch, is this real or is this something else going on? So he came, and they came for, I don't know, maybe a month, maybe six weeks, something like that. And, oh, every service, after the service, oh, I've never heard anything like this, Pastor Mike. You are the greatest teacher that has ever been on the face of the earth. Well, yes, I thank you. I know that already, but thank you for your confirmation. 
over and over and over and over and over again. About six weeks, they'd been in the church, and he came up to me, and he said, oh, man, I, I just keep thinking I can't get any better, and it keeps getting better every time. Now, now, Pastor Mike, I was thinking and I was praying about this the other day. If you need help around here at the church, you just tell me. Now, we, this is a long time ago, 20 years ago maybe, something like that. And so we, there are a lot of things we needed help with. So he said, if you need help with anything around the church, you just tell me. I, I'll, I'll do it. And I said, well, I, you know, there's, there's always things that we need help with in, in getting the sanctuary ready and picking up after services and, and things like that. It won't take you very long, but maybe after a service, if you wanted to go by and, and take a last look through the sanctuary and pick up after folks and maybe through the restrooms or something like that, that'd be a big help to us. And he got this look of shock and horror on his face. He said, well, I meant with teaching. Oh. Well, no, I pretty, got, pretty much got that handled. But thank you. Never saw him again. Never saw him again. It's amazing to me what people think are the, are the jobs that they qualify for. Well, Pastor Mike, that's easy for you to say because you're teaching. I don't feel like I'm qualified. I feel like I'm holding the spot until God brings somebody along that's better than me. Now, you may think I'm just being, being facetious. I'm not. I mean that seriously. There is no job that's too small for somebody with a servant's heart. There's a lot of jobs that are too small for people that don't know what they have, don't know who they are, and don't know where they're going. Okay, back to, uh, back to verse 18. Jesus said, I speak not of you all, but I know who I'm, I, whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Judas has just had his feet washed by the Savior of the world. Jesus has just taken a position of the lowliest of servants, slaves, to perform an act of humility upon Jesus, upon Judas. And Judas is in a matter of moments, hours maybe, an hour and a half, two hours, something like that, going to lift up his heel against Jesus. Verse 19, now I tell you before that it, bef- uh, let me start over. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. If you're reading from the King James, you notice that word he is in italics. That means the translators added it. They messed up. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am. Here's another time. Seven different times in the book, in the Gospel of John and only in the Gospel of John where Jesus identifies himself as I am. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that has sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one upon another, doubting of whom he spake. Now, Matthew's account, I think it's Matthew 26 something. I'm not sure what the verse is, but Matthew 26 says that when Jesus said this at the Last Supper, the disciples all started saying, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Finally, Judas says to the Lord, after Jesus gives him the sop, is it me? And Jesus said, thou hast said. 
Now, here's the thing that's this. Um, well, I think most of us miss this because it really takes some focusing in on what's going on and really, really taking some time to, to, to stop and think this thing through to, to figure out what's happening. The biggest surprise for the disciples was that Judas was a betrayer. Now, we read the Gospels and we know the end result. We know it was Judas. And so we see stuff going on along the way and we think they should have known. They should have known. But none of them knew. Judas is doing the same miracles that the others are. Judas has the same authority. He has the same supernatural ability that all the others do. He's not in the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. But there were nine others that weren't in that inner circle too. And they're still doing miracles too. So when Jesus talks about one of them betraying him, these guys cannot believe it. They're a tight-knit group. They've lived together for three years. They've done everything together. They've walked with Jesus. They've seen everything that Jesus has done. They've heard everything Jesus has said. They can't believe it. This would be the equivalent of the uh, of a Navy SEAL team carrying out operations in the war on terror and finding out that one of them is part of the terror group. You know, in movies, sometimes that's the big twist. And you think, oh, how, did, how could that be? How did, how did we miss that? That's exactly what happened when Judas became the betrayer and it became known. Nobody knew. Judas didn't even know he was going to do it until the, re- the very end, according to Matthew. Lord, is it me? Am I the betrayer? Now, maybe he was insincere. Maybe he already had made his plans and he's just seeing if Jesus knows. I don't know. But what does it tell us for sure? Here's some things that we do know. We know that Judas had it so under wraps that nobody suspected a thing. He has been good for three years. Whatever he's planned, whatever has been the progression of his hatred toward the Lord, we know in chapter 12 where it talks about Jesus' feet being anointed with the the costly ointment by Mary. We know that Judas was the one that stirred up the trouble saying, oh, this should have been sold. Chapter 12 talks about Jesus' feet being anointed. Chapter 13 talks about the disciples' feet being washed. But Judas has kept it under wraps. It was the huge, huge, huge surprise. Then the disciples looked one upon another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Everybody agrees that that was John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Now the Roman Catholic Church says that that Peter was the first pope because Peter was the preeminent of the disciples. Well, there's no question that Peter was the leader of the church in the book of Acts, the early days of the church, for a period of time. By the time Acts uh, Acts 15 comes along, James is now the leader. He's the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, and he's the one that's making decisions. But But the Roman Catholics take the position, as I understand it, that Peter was the preeminent of all the disciples during Jesus' ministry. Well, this disproves that. Because if Peter was preeminent, why did you have to get John to intercede for him to find out who's he talking about? He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped a sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, these things probably do not happen bang, 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 bang. There's probably a, a, a period of time, a delay between Jesus telling John, it's the one that I give the morsel to, and when it actually happened. Because if that had taken place, what would have kept John from saying, Judas, how could you do this? 
It's probably later on in the dinner as the, as the, the supper is concluding. Because, see, John doesn't give us any information about this cup is the New Testament of my blood. This, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. All the other gospel writers tell us that, which, which tells us something else about John's point of view. If, uh, and, and I don't mean anything wrong by this because uh, thank God for communion. It keeps our focus on what Jesus has done for us. But some people make the ritual of communion like Jesus itself. And, and uh, you know, the transubstantiation idea where the, the bread becomes the body of the Lord and the, the wine becomes the blood of Jesus and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, if it was that important, why didn't John tell us anything about it? He didn't say a word. No, John focuses on who we are in Christ by talking about our fellowship. He focuses on the importance of the word. He focuses on the last day message of Jesus or the last night message of Jesus here on the earth by telling them about who we are in Christ, our position with the Father because he goes to to be with the Lord. Here's another thing. You would think that with Jesus talking so much about his death here at the end that they're thinking we're not going to have him very long. But that's what chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all about. His ministry to them continues. And that's why he tells them about the Holy Ghost. That's why it talks about he loved his own till the end. Not till he was crucified. The crucifixion didn't have anything to do with his love. His love continues. His ministry toward them continues. His care for them continues. And folks, you need to realize that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he's not doing something in their interest. He's doing something to fulfill God's interest for them. See, the word of God is supposed to take a place of prominence in your life not because we just love the word, thank God we can, but because it brings blessings into our life. God cares about us, and that's why he gave us the word. So many times people look at the Bible as being a set of rules of do this and don't do this and all that kind of stuff. The Bible is just the way to enjoy life. It's what God wants for you that he gives you the instruction. So he says, uh, and when Jesus had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now notice in verse 27, both, uh, uh, I think it's Luke and John both tell us this. And after the sop, Simon entered into him. Uh, I'm sorry. After the sop, Satan, not Simon, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. Now, if everybody had known what John had asked and what Jesus had answered and all this kind of stuff, then everybody's going to know exactly what he's doing when he leaves the table. So there's got to be some kind of stuff going on in here that John doesn't tell us about that, that creates a, a time lapse so that their, their, their minds get on other things rather than this, at least in my thinking. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag... That means he was the treasurer that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, things change as soon as Judas leaves the room. Now Jesus starts talking about these guys being his children. They weren't as long as Judas was there. He's doing things to show Judas his opportunity for a place with him. But it's only after he leaves that he gets personal. Now, when, G- when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Why? Because Judas has gone to betray him. 
The wheels have been set in motion for Jesus' death. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that God is glorified in his death. That's an important point to remember. God is glorified in Jesus' death. That means every characteristic of God, every attribute of God, that means everything about the nature of God will be glorified in the way that Jesus dies and is therefore raised afterwards. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him, meaning in His death. Now, verse 32, if God be glorified in Him or in His death, God shall also glorify Him, Jesus, in Himself, and shall straightway glorify Him. Now, here's what this means. This means since my death is going to glorify every characteristic of God, every characteristic about His mercy, every characteristic about His care and His love and His concern for mankind, if my death is going to glorify God in that way, then in the same way, God will be quick to glorify me through the resurrection and seat me at His right hand. That's what verse 32 means. They didn't know it, but John looking back does. Little children, yet for a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you. Now, what does he mean, you shall seek me? He's talking about those three days. He's talking about those three days. He said, I'm not going to be with you, and you're going to want to know where did I go. Well, folks, there was only one period of time where they didn't know where he was, and that's the three days between the cross and the resurrection. They know where he is now. They know where he is when he's raised from the dead. He tells them. They watch him go up in a cloud to the Father. No question about where he is then. The only time they didn't know is the three days between the cross and the resurrection. Verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, notice we don't get to put our own definition on what love is, which a lot of the church does. He said, my new commandment is that you love one another like I loved you. Now, he's already given an example of servanthood. He's given an, an example of washing one another's feet. Here's what that looks like. Now he's saying the new commandment of love. Here's what that looks like. It looks like what I did for you. So shall you do to one another. By this, the new commandment of love, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. How can they possibly be disciples? Because he's washed them with the water of the word. And again, that's symbolic of his high priest ministry that is carrying on even now. It's symbolic of what happens to us when we become doers of the word in our own lives. It washes our lives to make us, to enable us to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That's one of the greatest prayers Paul ever prayed by the Holy Ghost. He prayed for the church that they would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That they would walk worthy. They are worthy by the blood of Jesus. But it's another thing to walk worthy or to live a lifestyle that's worthy of the Lord. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where goest thou? Jesus answered him, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. What's he talking about? He's talking about going to the pit of hell for the three days to pay the price for sin. Sin singular, meaning the sin of the world, spiritual death. But then he says, you will follow me after that. Follow me where? To the right hand of the Father. 
Peter said unto him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Peter, bless your heart. I'm sure he was sincere. I'm sure he meant what he said. But Jesus answered him and said, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto you, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me three times. I think John was charitable by not telling us what Peter thought about it at that point. Again, here's the impulsiveness of Peter. Chapter 14 is where Jesus is going to start talking about their place with the Father. He's going to talk to him about heaven. He's not just going to talk to him about when we get to heaven someday in the sweet by and by. He's going to talk to him about being seated in heavenly places in him. Do you see how personal it's getting now? Now that Judas is out of the room, now that the Jews have been set aside, he's ministered to the Jews, made an open declaration to them that he is the Messiah. They've rejected him and received him not. And now he's with the ones that, that he loves, These the, the, the ones that he says are his own. And what does he do? He reveals the Father to them like never before. I can just imagine these 60 years where John is remembering more and more and more, little bit by little bit, what Jesus said. It amazes me that the Holy Ghost didn't inspire any of the other gospel writers to tell about those things. Especially Matthew, he was there. Why didn't Matthew tell us any of these things? Well, the Holy Ghost had him emphasize other things. But because John is talking about Jesus being the Son of God and about us being in Christ. And fellowship is a big deal with John. His uh, All of his uh, letters that he writes, first, second, and third John, uh, the epistles that he writes to the church, they're all full of fellowship. They're about walking in love. They're about res- the result of fellowship that we have in him. You're going to enjoy the rest, I promise. Because it's going to get really, really personal. I love that verse one where it says, knowing that his hour has come, and he's going to depart this world to be with the Father. He loved his own. He loved his own. He still does. And there's nothing that you face, that the world faces, or that could possibly happen that would ever change that love. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That love never changes. That love was available for Judas, even though he knew what he was going to do. He loved Judas just as much as he loved John. That's why he was so troubled by Judas being the one to betray him. He knew he was going to be betrayed. And being betrayed is not always a bad thing, but it really hurts when it comes from somebody close. You expect to be betrayed by people that don't like you. But when it comes from somebody close, that's tough. And look at how Jesus is agonizing over that betrayal. Why? Because Judas was one of his own. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for revealing the Father to us. Open our eyes so that we see the place that you've made for us. The place of being seated with you in heavenly places. Help us to understand, Lord, the depth of your love for us. And the limitless 
possibilities because of that great love. Lord, help us to be servants of others and toward others, even as you served your disciples. Let us be the kind of people that will wash others' feet. Because we, like you, Jesus, know what we have. We know who we are. And we know where we're going. Therefore, Father, we thank you for giving us a boldness to declare the truth of the word and to humble ourselves in front of others that Jesus might be glorified. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.